The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Come on, record. And we're live. It's time. <coughs> Excuse me. It is Friday, April 22nd, 2022, 5.02 p.m. If you hear helicopters in the background, it is because uh, Dan and I in our adjacent neighborhoods, uh, which you have to cross a state line to get from one to the other, but neighbors anyway, we have an active shooter situation going on in the neighborhood. It's very exciting, um, except that two people seem to have been shot. Uh, and so uh, all of which is to say you may have helicopter noise in my background. I will try to keep myself muted. So look, I want to confess as a preliminary matter that I screwed up. Uh, uh, I scheduled uh, Dan for April 22nd to talk about his new book uh, uh, about uh, white supremacist violence domestically. And then I scheduled Alex uh, to come on and uh, uh, talk about uh, Victor in Trouble, um, uh, her latest CIA uh, satire that gave rise to the Yacht Watch. Uh, and I did that on April 22nd as well. And so I asked if either of them wanted to move to another day. Both of them have complicated schedules. And so we are going to do two completely dissonant books that have very little to do with one another, although we're going to find some things. We're going to do them together. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. We are allowed to have low-flying helicopters uh, looking for active shooters. Uh, and uh, so uh, let's. Uh, we're going to alternate questions between uh, the two books. Um, what's I'm that, going Kate? To it's a blank page and I'm going to take careful notes and make a Venn diagram about the things that these two books have in common. Excellent. All right. So let's start. Uh, we're just going to go back and forth. Um, Dan, uh, what did you, uh, what, what, uh, this is your first book on domestic matters. You're usually an international terrorism analyst. Um, what brought you home? Uh, so a couple things focused me on a topic that, frankly, I should have been focused on years ago. Uh, so one was, of course, a significant number of high casualty terrorism. Um, so we saw attacks on a black church. We saw attacks in New Zealand on two mosques. We saw the deadliest anti-Semitic attack in U.S. history on a synagogue. We saw an attack on El Paso Walmart. So a lot of horrible things. Um, we also, of course, um, had um, yet another, I should say, moment of reckoning on racial issues in the United States. And that brought a lot of these issues to the fore, not necessarily in an immediate violence sort of way, but in a way that really uh, kind of captured American politics. And on top of all that, of course, we had 
the rise not only of President Trump, but really around the world, we saw populist movements gaining uh, steam in a number of different countries. And all that grabbed my attention, both as someone who does terrorism, but also as someone who is just a concerned citizen. And I realized a lot of what I learned about terrorism, studying groups overseas, seemed relevant. But, but conversely, there was a lot that I had to learn that was quite different about this. And it was really interesting for me to kind of plunge into this topic and uh, learn from, from some amazing people. Oh, you're, you're muted, Ben. All right. So, Alex, uh, who is Victor and why is he in trouble, poor guy? So Victor is a case officer and he's in trouble because, Kate, get your Venn diagram ready. Uh, he is uh, in Europe trying to recruit sources to learn about Russian influence operations and, has, and is very quickly learning about how a number of politicians particularly in the right wing are, are bought and influenced uh, by the Russian president. And he then has to protect his source from the very same politicians who uh, have been bought off by this particular president. So it's a satire of Russian influence operations, uh, but it grew out of my research on uh, Russian election interference and Russian influence operations across both the US and Europe. I've got nothing so far. <laughs> I'm just going to no, go no, with uh, uh, But I, I, I want to pick up on um, what Alex's point, right? Because uh, what uh, Alex has highlighted is that there is an overlap between Russia and the far right, and including the white nationalist world. And this is something that I will say is, as someone who tried to study it and even wrote a relatively obscure academic article on it, um, it's incredibly maddening because I felt that I was grasping at smoke. Uh, there are lots of little examples. We saw a shooter uh, who killed uh, people in Sweden who had been trained in Russia at a paramilitary camp there. Um, of course, we've seen Russia try to inflame the far right in Europe even more, in fact, than um, it did in the United States. Um, we also see this kind of you know, cult of personality of the you know, shirtless Putin who's so masculine and hates gay people and otherwise stands up but won't for fight traditional me. values, but is too afraid to fight Ben Wittes, yes. Um, and um, all that is something that um, has kind of led to this bizarre overlap with white supremacy, uh, far-right extremism in Russia. And in Ukraine, we saw extremists on both sides of the conflict before the latest invasion. Uh, so you know, what this shows to me is, you know, which is true in, in most politics, is, is strange bedfellows. But there's really something kind of nasty and dirty going on here that I think, at least I hope, gets a lot more scrutiny. So, uh, Alex, Victor has had two previous books. Um, and uh, has he joined you now in Barcelona? So, yeah, so the, uh, the third book has him on his retirement tour uh, in Europe. Um, but I won't give away the ending of the book, and I won't tell you what he chooses to do at the end. Uh, but yeah, the whole setup is that this is his retirement tour. He's actually in Italy uh, for this. Uh, this one is set in Rome. Um, and uh, and just to be clear, very, 
retirement tour does not mean for those who are not former agency does not mean the tour that you go on after you retire. After. It means Correct. the tour that you go on, prof the, the service tour, the two years or three year tour that you spend prior to retirement. Is that right? Correct. Correct. So yes, this is Victor's last tour for his agency. He's a case officer and intelligence officer. And, and he, he works tour. if memory serves from the earlier books for the CYA, right? Correct. Yes. So it's a, it's a satirical CIA because the first book is all about uh, covering your ass. And so I named it the CYA. So yes, in this one, he is on his last tour. He is two years from retirement from the government and he and his family go to Rome anticipating two blissful years full of eating pasta and drinking wonderful wine. And instead they end up sort of in a national security nightmare and uh, and in trouble and it's uh, what happens during those two years so how did you go from there's sort of some kind of relationship that you mentioned to me <clears throat> between working on this book and starting the yacht watch project uh what was the nature of the yacht research that you were doing for this book that led you to uh to yacht watch Right. So as I said, the the satire in Victor in Trouble is about Russian influence operations. So it's really a funny look. I mean, it's it's a satire, but it, I, I hope that it highlights sort of some realities about Russian influence operations, particularly across Europe. And integral to those operations are the oligarchs. And so I said, well, if I'm going to do a book about Russian influence operations, I need an oligarch. And well, if you're gonna have an oligarch, it follows naturally that you have to have a yacht. And so I did a bunch of research on oligarchs and yachts. And uh, because I live in Barcelona, we have a lot of yachts. We, even before the war, we had a lot of Russian yachts. We have way fewer Russian yachts now. Um, the ones that are here are, are detained. But um, before that, we had a whole bunch of them. And so it was a really great place to learn about the yachts, learn about the different oligarchs, and get to know the boats. And so I was sort of already familiar with that world. And because I had been a Russia watcher and researching it, I had covered the Russia investigation in the United States. I had written for Just Security and others about all kinds of Russian influence operations. And so through all of this, I was sort of aware of what was happening. And I was pretty sure even by before January, I think that this war was going to start. And certainly by January, I was very sure it was going to start. And I knew that sort of the natural next step would be sanctions on oligarchs. I think all of us within the national security environment, that was one of the main things that we were all talking about. And uh, so one of the things to do is to, to go after their luxury assets. And so the yachts were, were part of that. So I, I, had been watching something that I kind of figured was on an upward wave, but uh, there is a bit of kismet to it, I suppose. And yachts, particularly extravagant yachts in bad taste, uh, have a certain inherent humor something to them, right? This is true, right? And they're so opulent. They're so <laughs> ridiculous. And, you know, this is it. Like, who needs all who of needs this? Who satire? <laughs> this, this was actually this was actually the hardest part about the book 
was that reality was already so absurd that uh, doing satire either felt too absurd or too real. And I, I couldn't always tell which one. So it was kind of hard actually to write this book. Um, but yeah, the yachts are, are a great place for satire. And so there's actually a whole, a whole chapter about the oligarch and his yacht and uh, some of the extravagant accoutrements that he has on his yacht. I I totally want to be an oligarch. I think it's the only <laughs> title that I've ever really aspired to. Um, and all right, so Dan, um, you Dan, are. Dan, are there any yachts in domestic terrorism? <laughs> you know, it, it tends yes. to be uh, a slightly poorish crowd. Um, and not a huge number of yachts, but I do want to call Ben uh, Doge. So I think I'm gonna <laughs> go with that for the future. But yeah, I, 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 could, I could deal with Doge. <laughs> um, you know, when the Venetian Doges would die, there was an official thing that the, this is true, that the, uh, um, the Venetian Senate would issue a proclamation that said, our gracious prince has died but do not worry, we will create another one, um, <laughs> which I thought was a, a wonderful succession ritual. So Dan, you are now one of the few people, the world of terrorism studies, I wouldn't say is neatly divided, but is pretty neatly divided into people who study overseas terrorism, mostly, but not exclusively of an Islamist variety, and people who study white supremacy. Uh, and there are not very many who do both. You are now part of that rarefied core who have done both. So who scares you more? Um, I would say in general, the white supremacists and right-wing extremists scare me more. But, but let me back up from that statement. Um, in terms of skill using violence, um, so far the jihadists, have been much better, especially at their height. They were better trained. They had a sanctuary. They were able to plan. They were able to do fairly sophisticated, difficult operations, not only, of course, 9-11, but things like the 2015 Paris attacks. Um, and they were able to inspire people with a lot of reach. Um, the white supremacists don't have nearly that skill level. Um, the good news is that law enforcement and security services are able to disrupt the vast majority of plots. But what scares me is the overlap with politics. Um, you know, in a U.S. context, uh, there is no nonviolent but large Americans for Sharia law organization, right? There is no equivalent that is kind of preaching part of the, the jihadist terrorist creed, but avoiding violence. But of course, we do have large numbers of people, you know, uh, depends uh, millions, depending on what you want to count, that embrace extremely harsh anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant um, views that see the government as a, a very dangerous, treasonous conspiracy. And so you have this back and forth ping-ponging between the most extreme and people with views that are, are pretty harsh uh, that don't inherently support violence, but it legitimates the violence. And when you have right-wing violence occurs, as we of course saw on January 6th and still see now with various you know, investigations and hearings going on, uh, it's very hard to isolate the most extreme from the mainstream. And that to me is one of the, the biggest, most dangerous shifts in the last 25 years where you always had 
violence on both the left and right of the political spectrum. But it was pretty clear that, you know, President Reagan, President Bush, others, you know, openly rejected these figures and were, were you know, happy to say so repeatedly. And now we're not seeing that separation. And that's extremely scary to me. What do you think, Alex? Can I? Yeah, yeah, yeah go ahead. Jump into that because because that that's exactly the 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 overlap. Uh, it, the the problem that we have now is that the politicians are standing for all of this and saying yes, we actually legitimize this type of activity. And while it's organic in its in its own sense, as I'm sure Dan has found in his research, I won't speak for you, but the, it is exploited by Russia. And so uh, you have things like the World Family Congress coming in and pushing for these very traditional Christian values, anti-LGBTQ type of things. Um, you have politicians. Look at Le Pen now in France, totally anti-immigrant. She took money from Russia. Uh, these are it's She just Italy. paid it back. Did she pay it back today? Yeah, today. Um, really? Really? Yeah, yeah. she yeah, got it's like fourteen thousand or something like that. She, she got thing. she got attacked for it in the debate. You know, yeah. uh, Macron said she was uh, he had met with Putin as a head of state, not as a banker, and uh, she was sufficiently embarrassed. I don't know why it took her this long. The the party paid the debt back today. Okay, I missed that. That solves it. Sorry, because that's yeah, really right. how this works. <laughs> and, and how about how about the money she took from Orban? I don't know about that. Um, okay, because so, the money from Orban probably is coming from Russia too. But um, anyway, so the, all of this overlaps, and and uh, the. All of this is exploited then by Russia. And these are the types of influence operations that they're running. They, they then are funding and financing and uh, amplifying through these disinformation and social media campaigns. These politicians who go ahead and, and amplify uh, and legitimize that type of behavior. And I think this is part of why you're seeing a global uh, far right movement. So, Alex, what is the connective thread between other than satire about the intelligence community? Is there a connective thread between the books about threats and our responses to them? Yes. So uh, the the I would say the connective thread in all of this actually is that I make fun of the bureaucracy and I make fun of Washington. Um, so the, the first book, Victor and the Rubble, is very much about uh, it's the, the premise. It takes place during the war on terror. And so the, it's how sort of the bureaucracy just doesn't work. I took, I took the bureaucracy of Washington and I put it on the terrorists to see sort of what would happen. Um, the second book still has some of that, but is much more sort of about the fun and adventure of working for the CIA. Uh, but this one has a lot of that um, bureaucracy put back into it added with the politics so that you you have a president who uh, is welcoming of what Russia is doing. Uh, you have a, a one political party that is, you know, welcoming and, and encouraging Russia to do a lot of what it's doing. So um, I would say, yeah, the connective thread is just the, the discord and uh, dysfunction of Washington. 
Um, I, I'm going to add to try to add to Kate's list uh, this. Uh, one thing that always I find fascinating are thinking of these movements as bureaucratic organizations, right? And as Alex knows better than I, you can learn a lot by doing that when you look at government agencies. Uh, but you can also do it when you look at terrorist groups. And, you know, one thing that was amazing about Al-Qaeda was, you know, the sheer bureaucracy uh, that many of the people in the group had to deal with, where there would be back and forth about, you know, spending money on repairing a fax machine and complaints um, about, you know, going over the limit on expenses, things that anyone who has worked for a large bureaucracy is, is familiar with. Um, and you have some of this absurdity in the white supremacist world, uh, but it gets drowned out because they're underground. And so many of them are trying to hide from uh, law enforcement and so on. Um, and when they do that, you actually see the advantage of bureaucracy, right? So the jihadists and so on can have bureaucracy because they're in havens. But the white supremacists are afraid their records will get stolen and can't form large groups and so on. And so they try to operate in clandestine ways. Uh, people make a very big deal about how um, social media and so on enable this. But at times it leads to absurdity. You know, I think my favorite was there was a, a neo-Nazi group uh, that uh, was linked to you know, uh, Estonia, if I recall, uh, that turned out to be led by a 13-year-old boy. And of course, no one knew it, right? Because um, you know it was online, right? And you know, and on the you, internet, nobody knows you're a dog. No one knows you're a dog or a thirteen-year-old boy, uh, but they do know you're a neo-Nazi, right? And so, thirteen-year-old boy dog. Yeah, I, I'm uh, pasted <laughs> in the chat. Actually, I put a little BBC link for those interested. And um, it is, you know, it, it, you have this kind of absurdity that goes, you know, and this is something we see again and again, when you go from absolute horror and terror to things that are just laughable. So what, can, can, I, can I add one thing to that? Because I actually developed much more of an appreciation for some of the bureaucracy with the Russia investigation. So, you know, I, I had made fun of sort of how slow the CIA was in responding to a number of things during the war on terror and how it got so bureaucratic. But then, in fact, a lot of that bureaucracy kind of saved us, right, when it came to the Russia investigation, that these checks and balances that we sometimes complain about as not being flexible and not being fast enough were actually the thing that, that you know, that saved us. How do you mean, in what sense did bureaucracy save us in the context of the Russia investigation? That people had certain rules in place and most, not everybody, were ready to, to follow them and to say, okay, I can't do this until I do this. And so it wasn't just, well, the president told me to go and arrest this guy. Well, no, I can't do it because there are certain rules in place that I have to follow. Uh, before so I do you do you think of that as bureaucracy or do you think of that as just kind of orderly processes and rules or are they the same thing? I think it's the same thing and I and I think that there's a balance to be found uh, between the two because there there was a lot of frustration in the agency when the second that legal gets added to a cable you know that now everything is going to take 10 times longer and it's frustrating when you're out in the field and you're the one who who has an immediate thing that you're trying to do, but now it's being discussed back at, at headquarters. Um, but I developed more of an appreciation for a lot of that discourse and 
um, and those rules be in place during the during the Russia investigation. So it's a balance. I'm not saying, not saying right, it should right. be like totally one or the other. So Dan, um, back to the uh, relative dangers of uh, overseas safe haven-based terrorists versus domestic, widely distributed. Um, I, it, it seems to me that one of the one of the scary things about the white supremacist world is the possibility that they could gain some of the technical sophistication of the Islamist groups. I mean, the extreme case is not Al-Qaeda, it's Hezbollah, um, who are, you know, really good at it. Um, uh, why do they remain so generally incompetent? It seems like the saving grace of these groups is that they're pretty uniformly bad at it, except Tim McVeigh. So I've thought about this a lot. And, you know, one thing to say as, as a caveat before I, I plunge in is because of you know, very relaxed American gun laws, it's pretty easy for some chucklehead to pick up some pretty high-powered weaponry and just shoot people, right? And so they have weapons at their disposal that ordinary citizens have uh, that can kill people and lead to, you know, at times a significant number of people dying. While if we kind of go across the Atlantic to where um, Alex is, you know, that person might pick up a knife, right? Or use a Molotov cocktail, still can kill people, but it's just harder to kill lots of people with, with less technical capacity. Uh, but all that said, you know, go back to the early 1970s. Uh, you had left-wing groups doing uh, literally hundreds of bombings, right? And so it's not as if, you know, a bombing is some, you know, skill that really only, you know, mad geniuses and highly trained terrorists can do. You have uh, a, an array of groups that have done different levels, and I would say a couple of reasons. Uh, one is that the FBI, to its, its great credit, and local law enforcement have actually done a pretty good job stopping most very organized groups. And as a result, you um, don't have groups that have a lot of top-down training, uh, top-down instructions on operational security. You know, going back to Alex's point about bureaucracy, we can call this, call this the professionalization part of bureaucracy where people come in who are kind of enthusiastic chuckleheads and over time they train, they learn and become more deadly. Uh, you're much less likely to have that because the organizations themselves are largely shattered. Um, and instead you have um, what we would call highly networked dangerous individuals, but it's hard for a network to do intensive training. It's hard for a network to uh, teach people about operational security. Um, another thing is that, you know, thankfully, most of these people um, don't really recognize that what they're doing is you know, criminal behavior and people are hunting for them. Uh, so they kind of think they're really joining the Marines and that the you know, 25 people they're talking You really to, see this in the 1-6 investigation. Uh, exactly. And that's just pretty common. And they, they think the people they're talking to are all their friends as opposed to someone who will sell them out for a dime uh, to get rid of, you know, a drug possession charge or something like that. And so they're often blurting out their bad intentions. 
and making it relatively easy to monitor and arrest them. So I think they have some big problems. You know, one, one thing I'll say about my book is I go back and forth between their real problems and this is scary to don't overestimate these people. They have tons of problems themselves. And if we're pretty aggressive about this and treat this seriously, we can at least contain this problem. So I have, I have, I want to, so speaking about like how you kind of recruit, um, people to work in either of these movements or to be an asset or to do anything. One of the things that struck me, so I, I have to share a funny story, Dan, which is that you had told me that you were sending me a copy of your book. Um, I had forgotten that you were sending me a copy of your book. A package arrived. It had no return address on it for whatever reason. And I open it up and it just says, like, all I see as I pull it out is this, just this hate on it. And it's like bright red. Then <laughs> it's like spreading hate. And then your name is like, relatively small on the bottom and i was like who is sending me a book about it spreading hate and i should i mean like you would think i'd be used to this like all of the books but it made me actually think everyone about, sends you books about spreading hate. i know but like yeah so like so i was like oh god someone's like anyways um and then i was like oh it's dan's book of you <laughs> like, like but um i actually kind of made me think about something which is that there is the, the word hate, the word that we're, you're, you're using to title your book, the way that we characterize these domestic terrorism like groups or international terrorism groups, the way that we characterize a lot of the stuff um, that people fight against and why they decide to be assets to different governments or like that other than their own, et cetera, et cetera. People aren't doing this because they're like, we're going to spread hate right like they're not you're not getting drawn into this movement out of an idea that like hate seems like a pretty universally like we're not for it type of concept whether you're on the right or the left I, i'm not sure that's right really? well I've, i mean dan do people get in this because they like wanna i think some people get in this because they want to spread hate no but but i okay this is actually my question yeah so the like I mean, you know, in their eyes, they're spreading truth, right? Yes. Spread, but that said, you know, they are, the truth is, you know, a wide variety of, you know, hateful ideas. You know, Jews are evil bloodsuckers. Muslims are coming to blow us all up. Um, you know, Hispanics are but lazy they think rapists. That those right? other groups are hateful groups the, or they're the, doing something that's like perpetuating hate or bad action, right? The, like they think that, those are the right. baddies, right? And that is a, that's a terrorism universal is every yeah. group thinks they're on the defensive, right? So yes. if you ask Al Qaeda folks or ISIS folks, they would say, look, you know, we're under attack by the West or by, you know, apostate governments, what have you. Um, we're just fighting back finally. And that's something that is, um, you know, I, I think a really important point. Like one thing I know, I know several shows ago, like perhaps many, you had uh, Kathleen below from the University of Chicago. Yeah, I was actually going right. to bring up Kathleen in a second, but and, yeah, go ahead. And one thing that she identifies in her book that I think is very important is there is a transition point where if you go back to the 1950s and 1960s, and this is something I'm kind of into this question, so I uh, have way too much on this in my book probably. Um, you go back, you know, there would be, you know, most of the people in various Klan chapters and so on in the U.S. would say, we're basically the police. Right. Like, you know, the police can't act the way we can. So we do things to kind of preserve government, law and order. We're the good guys. And it's only until the FBI squashes them like a bug in the late 1960s and early 1970s that they start to say, 
hey, maybe we don't like government, right? We're not on the side of law and order, but that's a huge transition point for if you think of white supremacist movements in the United States since, you know, Reconstruction, they've seen themselves as, you know, our goal is to be embedded in government yes, rather than in opposition to government. So I guess this is kind of, and this is maybe something that I see is similar about being an asset. So this is, or being in intelligence or doing this type of work is that you're kind of working outside or very tangentially within the bounds of government uh, to kind of further your own government, thinking that you're on the right side of things. Um, but I guess my, my point is, is that there's some of this stuff, like to your point, Ben, like I know that there are obviously people who are like actually hateful and are walking around, but like, but the language of how they like, about how they do that, there is both like the victim, like we are the victims and so we're defending ourselves type of language. And then there is like, and Kathleen talks about this a lot. There's also the language of like, there is the there is the 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 language that is outward and the language that is inward. Like a lot, of, one of the interesting things that I find about like these kinds of small like terrorism organizations when they start building out these networks is that they actually create this inclusivity and this this brotherhood and this like sense of belonging for people who are lonely and sad and like other types of things. And that's one of the reasons. And that type of belonging. And the the delta between and like the differentness of like other people or hating other people and being on the defensive of other people creates this type of creates. So like, I think that what's interesting about this is if you're being kind of thoughtful about these terrorism groups, that even though like any kind of logical, rational person would espouse that they're espousing hate, they're propagating hate, all of these things is that they're not feeling that in the world that they're living in, in any type of way. And so, I don't know, that's just kind of, I don't know if this is like, I'm making total sense no, here. I, I mean, let me, um, I don't know how many people who are, are watching or part of this uh, saw the movie Jojo Rabbit, um, which I thought was awesome, by the way. Um, and one of the things that it makes clear is that if you're a 10 year old boy or however old he was, it's really fun to be a Nazi youth, right? Because you get to like, you know, carry a torch around and shout things and have enemies and, you know, fight for the great leader. And um, the sense of belonging is actually a sense of camaraderie, right? And we see this again and again with, with you know, wide variety of groups, right, is they have political aspects and they have social club aspects. And I'll say, you know, often when we talk about terrorism, it's, it's always doom and gloom. There's one big, huge change when we talk about, I'll say, hate groups rather than terrorist groups is the decline of the skinhead movement. Uh, the skinhead movement, which was you know, incredibly active in a number of European countries, as well as the United States. I got attacked by skinheads Yeah, this once. is a great story. Oh, yeah, so but, but, I'll finish my 30,000 foot, but I, I wanna hear that story. Just the decline of it was, um, there are reasons for its decline, but this was an incredibly violent movement and it wasn't politically directed for the most part. It was mainly, let's hang out with our mates, listen to some crap music, get really drunk and beat up the first black person right, first black or minority person you encounter. And it's not, oh my gosh, this is going to revolutionize the world. But for someone like Ben, I assume, and for lots of communities, this really sucked. Uh, go ahead, Ben. I really want to hear this. Oh, it's uh, I, I will tell it, but I don't want to div divert the show onto it. It's actually a kind of a long story. Yeah, but Alex, hold on really quickly. I just kind of want to, Alex, does any of this resonate with you about how intelligence works and how you kind of end up turning people against their countries or getting them to kind of like become assets or anything like that? 
Yeah, I mean, the, the key thing is to find what motivates somebody. And like you said, it, it, a feeling of belonging, you know, is, is always a great way. And so if you find somebody who who's joined a terrorist group, but then feels alienated by it, they're not getting out of it what they were sold that they were going to get out of it, that may be somebody who has a vulnerability that you can uh, work on them to to recruit them. But uh, to, to your point, yeah, I mean, a, a terrorist doesn't call themselves a, a terrorist. They they see themselves as um, you know, they're, they're fighting for, for justice in, in their own way. I, I actually, can I ask Dan a question? You had talked about how for a lot of these white nationalist guys, it was like joining the Marines. So I, I've been thinking that, um, so I, I know these groups existed a lot before, but a lot of what we see now, has it, has it grown out of the war on terror? Because part of what I have been wondering is, um, we, we've had this idolization, right, of the military. So people going out and wanting to to learn how to shoot and dress in camouflage. It's really become this a part of our, our society and our culture. Um, and at the same time, we've had this dehumanization of the other, right? Because the terrorists and are, are not human. That's why it's okay for us to go and try to kill all of them. Um, and the military is sort of separate from this idea of law enforcement. Uh, they, like I said, we we... You know, we idolize them and we sort of put this up. We have football games where we celebrate them at halftime and all these types of things. And then these white nationalists go and they're running around in the in the in the woods, feeling like they're you know live action role playing, and they're really really part of it. But they've never signed up. They never actually went to war. So does that play in at all, Dan, into what you see and how they're recruited and what they think they're getting into? Uh, I mean, definitely, and certainly their own self image. Right. And this is something that kind of broader shift towards the paramilitary focus of this whole movement. And, you know, and part of that is is just a shift in America where when almost, you know, when you have generations where almost everyone served, you realize that, you know, the military, you know, does great things, but also has a lot of problems and it's a big bureaucracy. And, you know, you have older generations that don't kind of look at their time in the military as, you know, this was the greatest institution I ever worked for. And everything's perfect, right? They had very open eyes about about all this, um, and certainly, you know, these people see themselves um, as heroic defenders. And you know, that to me has been one of the big shifts in the kind of post 9/11 movement. To go to your point, is that you've had a national security component added to all this. So you always, you know, there's been anti-immigrant sentiment in America ever since we've had immigrants, right? That's not a, a new concept. But the concept uh, in recent years was much more about, you know, either economic, people are stealing their jobs, or it was cultural, right? they don't fit in. But after 9-11, it was, and they're going to kill us. And so I think the war on terror, both in terms of, you know, making the, this broad set of enemies seem much more dangerous, and in terms of this kind of, you know, increased admiration of the paramilitary world really did have an effect. So before we go to audience questions, I have one more question for Alex, which is I understand how you make the CIA funny. I don't understand how you make the subject matter funny. And, you know, whether it's, I mean, okay, oligarchs and their yachts, I get it. But terrorists, you know, guerrilla movements, uh, uh, I mean, this isn't really funny stuff. Uh, and so what's the strategy, you know, 
that you pair with bureaucratization to make humor out of the subject matters that Victor is thinking about dealing with? What I've found is that even in the most serious things, there's total absurdity. So in the war on terror, there, there was absolute absurdity. I mean, the, the thing is when you're actually in the field and you're doing these things, it, it's a very different world and it's weird. It, it's not nearly as clear cut as what you might read in a newspaper or something. And so you go out to try to do something and, and something absurd happens. Um, the second book, Victor in the Jungle, for example, has a, a, a populist dictator in South America who's funded by a narco-trafficking movement. And that dichotomy alone is funny because you have a populist leader who's all about these lefty politics and uh, you know getting as close to socialism as you can possibly get, but the narco-traffickers are just out there to make money, which is a totally capitalist uh sense right and and the two are, are working together and so that that's absurd okay so there that's a point for for comedy uh the same are there the hippos terrorists. no you know the first the, this, there's no hippos in that one no the narco <laughs> the narco guy no there's a submarine there's no hippos in that one um there's caimans there's like alligators and cane, crocodiles and caimans um but like the, the emu t-shirts are there what emu t-shirts I'll try to fit that into the next one. All right. Um, but but that's oh, it. There's, al there's always absurdity. Yeah, there's always absurdity, even in the most, uh, because usually there's there's hypocritical stuff that you can always find, and, and that's always a place for, for satire. Jared, you are the blackest of black rectangles, but the floor is yours. Thanks, Ben. So, uh, bouncing back to white supremacism, um, I'm curious that uh, we've seen some politicians recently kind of echoing uh, white supremacist uh, sentiments. So I'm curious, uh, has that had any effect on the white supremacist movement itself? Uh, so you know, one of the biggest uh, shifts in the white supremacist movement in, in the last you know two years has been the crackdown after January 6th. And this is something that has, you know, hit them both hard in terms of some members, but also in terms of, you know, scaring a lot of people. Um, and so they are responding to political wins uh, because the political wins lead to changes in focus and resourcing changes and changes in terms of what law enforcement investigates and so on. But this is definitely something that uh, they take heart in, which is they respond to um, whether, you know, uh, when political leaders are supporting them uh, because they see themselves as heroes. So they follow, you know, like many of us do, they have kind of narrow environments where they're following certain people, but not others. And that sort of support is encouraging. Um, but the good news, and I really want to stress there is some good news here, is you know, the attacks we were seeing that really seemed to peak around 2019, uh, we haven't seen that kind of scale in the last two years. And, you know, with terrorism counterterrorism there's a huge random factor right so you could have 2019 could have been they got lucky a few times or today could be the good guys got lucky a few times um and it's really hard to kind of know when the threat's increasing or decreasing and when random factors are just coming together but to me if you have large numbers of politicians who are supporting them 
um, it makes it more likely that at least a few actors will see them are more likely to see themselves as heroes, are more likely to kind of spin off in dangerous ways. Um, but even more so, it it leads to really bad political results, right? So you know when we talk about the Klan in the 1920s. Um, it had a huge impact on American immigration policy, changing America from this incredibly welcoming place for millions of immigrants to a much more closed place. And um, that was done through legislation, right? I mean, it wasn't a you know uh, campaign of violence, it was a campaign of politics. And so I'm tremendously concerned about this. And I will add, just to, to push it a bit, I will add I'm especially concerned at the state and local level. Um, obviously, many of us you know, pay attention to the national level figures, but you can have huge impacts on local communities and doesn't make the news outside that community, but really can shape you know, the lives of many, many people. Richard Wattenbarger, you have a string of questions. Ask them in order. Sure, on my screen, but here we go. Okay, um, Dan, first... Uh, what are, what are some of the effects on white supremacy movements that should concern us, not only in France, but around the globe in the event that uh, Le Pen is elected on Sunday? Uh, so I want to be careful because I'm not a, a French uh, politics specialist. So, uh, you know, take everything that comes out of my mouth with, with you know, whole packets of salt here. Um, but... Uh, the way Le Pen simply doing better than she did in the previous election right there is troubling. But there's a, a question, which is a, a broader question for extremist politics, which is in some countries where there's no um, kind of successful anti-immigrant uh, you know, racist party, uh, some individuals are more likely to take up the most extremes because they don't have a mainstream outlet. So sometimes you have a choice between really nasty but more mainstream politics versus less nasty mainstream politics but some more extremists. And we've seen you know, greater terrorism sometimes in countries where you don't have that political outlet. Um, with Le Pen, I am tremendously worried um, about low-level violence, especially against the French Muslim community. Um, but that can come in multiple ways, right? That can come from, uh, you know, were she to win, God forbid, um, it could come from, you know, state leaders whipping up tension. It could come from the withdrawal of police protection. It could come from kind of a host of things that the government has the power to either encourage or prevent. Uh, but I also worry about issues, you know, the equivalent of the election fraud sort of narratives we see in the United States, where Muslims or others will be blamed and there'll be a, to, uh, a temptation to kind of whip up anger against them by people on the most extreme. And, and as you know, uh, you know, Le Pen has a challenger on the far right, right? So, you know, she's not the craziest of the crazy and that can She's the moderate. Her, she's the moderate crazy, exactly. And that's deeply disturbing. So Alex, you do you have thoughts on Le Pen? Does she have a yacht? I, she does not yet have a yacht. Maybe if she becomes president, she's gonna get a yacht. No, I agree. I, uh, it's a very um, important election, and uh, if Le Pen wins, that it changes the entire uh, security uh, structure of, of Europe and the West for sure. And I agree. I, I think there would be a certain amount of violence, and more so as as she 
if she were to you know to stay in for five years uh, you know uh, she's already pushing you know anti-islam she's been pushing i mean she she's made an attempt i think over the past few years uh, to distance herself from her father and to change some of the language but really when when you listen you you the message is is the same so yeah i um i think it's very important that she not win your next question richard okay um and how has COVID affected white supremacist movements around the world. For example, if governments imposed public, if government imposed public health measures had a noticeable effect on recruiting, and do we know if white supremacist groups use issues other than racial superiority to recruit members? Uh, so one of we, we, we're all trying to figure out in, in my little subspecialist world, um, why we've seen a decrease in attacks. And one possible reason is like everyone else, they're sitting at home in front of their computer screens, right? So, you know, one of the effects of COVID just may be people, people don't get out, right? And um, Netflix. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. They're all watching racist films and racist YouTube videos. Um, however, uh, this um, question of recruitment, uh, here we have to get to a really messy analytic issue, which is the overlap of white supremacist groups with anti-government groups and what to call them in the end. Right? And you know, you have these networks and you have these really bizarre amalgams, right? Where you'll get, you know, environmental groups that um, are anti-government because they see governments as promoting pollution. You'll have, you know, white supremacist groups, um, but ones that are, you know, kind of admire someone like, you know, uh, Ted Kaczynski. And, you know, so it's a really strange hybrids. And it's the, it's the joy and curse of the internet, right? Where you'll have all these ideas crashing together and some catch on more than others and people are promoting them. Um, and so as everyone here knows, you know, many better than I, uh, COVID has been very good for anti-government extremism, right? So the various restrictions and problems and so on have led a lot of people to doubt government uh, led a lot of people to be angry at government. And since white supremacist groups are often anti-government, they have pushed that. But that's not a white supremacist story, right? That's an anti-government story. And I've seen in kind of the, you know, aspects I follow, I've actually seen the white supremacist, you know, current become less active compared with the broader anti-government current. But they, they mix a lot, right? So if you look at the uh, the freedom convoy in um, uh, in Canada, right? You know, you had you know mainly anti-government, you know, COVID and so on. But you had white supremacists show up. You had Confederate flags there, which always fascinates me. Um, and so this, um, I would say, it's it's benefited, you know, cousins to the movement. Um, but the movement itself, I would say, has not benefited as much as others. Your last I, question, I think, Richard? Yeah. Um, Alex, uh, so I, since uh, intelligence work actually takes place in the real world, um, surely there's some funny things that must happen from time to time uh, in intelligence. And I'm just uh, curious if you have funny stories from your uh, experience that you can talk about, or do they fall under the category of material that's going to appear in a forthcoming novel? I'll say this. I don't have a specific story that I'll tell, but I'll say all three books um, are are much, <laughs> they're fiction, but they're much more based on reality than one would think. 
Um, so I don't think there's anything in there that I made up in any of the books that I made up whole cloth. I, I think almost everything that I satirize is based in some way on real events or real things. Real events um, that you uh, experienced in the agency or real events that, you know, you read about in newspapers and thought, hey, this is good material or found wandering around the docks in, in looking for yachts in Barcelona? All of the above. But there are a lot of things that happened to Victor that um, either are grew out of my own experience or grew out of um, experiences of, of friends and colleagues of mine uh, who just, you know, we, we just kind of had a running list of things we would laugh at between us where somebody would come in and say, you're not gonna believe this one. Um, and and so I, I took all those things and I played with them and, and moved them around a little bit to make a story. But um, the, no, the intelligence world, but like any bureaucracy, any big organization, there's a lot of strange and funny things that happen. Um, and in intelligence, it's even more so because, it, of course, it's such a serious thing and the mission is so serious. Um, uh, but then, you know, something can just go totally wrong. Uh, but it, it can be funny. So what is, uh, without asking you about your own experience, uh, because then you get into your, you know, you didn't submit this conversation to pre-publication review and all of that. What is the funniest thing about the CIA or the U.S. intelligence community that the average person doesn't know? Oh, I have to go back and think. So I did a whole series actually on my website of uh, all the different agencies and funny things inside. Um, I, I think. Oh, I mean, I think there's there's a few things. I, I think one in the in the public realm, there's you know, especially under the Trump administration, um, there there was this idea put out that you know intelligence officers are. A deep state and not trustworthy and all these types of things. And in fact, you know, these these guys are you know trusted with millions of dollars and they make decisions and that are very high level and you know they're actually the most trustworthy people. Um, but they, you know, but there's funny things. I don't know we had this hot dog vending machine at headquarters. Not many people know that. You could, I think those are gone now. But you could buy your hot dog out of a vending machine. I which, have to say, the only excuse me, what? The only yeah. Starbucks <laughs> in which people pull me out of line to say hello is the one at, at is the one inside NSA where like I showed up to get a cup of coffee and it was like uh, you know I was a celebrity so I love the internal uh, Starbucks at NSA. Yeah, well, the, uh, but the that was during is, the Snowden stuff. The the joke is that the Starbucks at CIA is the highest revenue Starbucks because everybody's always hanging out caffeinated there. all the time. But uh, but that but that that's like that's one of the you know that's one of the dichotomies that I paint. It's that we you know the field trying to vending machine. There, Sorry. There, are hot dog <laughs> there were I have I've heard that those have gone away, but there are hot dog there were hot dog vending machines. Uh, I'm with Kate. I'm still trying to kind of mention <laughs> how does it work. <laughs> So, Dan, you also worked at CIA once upon a time. Um, what do you think is the funniest thing about CIA that outsiders don't get? Oh, gosh. Um, I, I'm caught a bit flat-footed on this, and I, I worked there in the Precambrian era, so uh, my experience is, is pretty dated. Um, 
I, I would just say, you know, I don't think people realize that it's a big bureaucracy composed of largely normal people. Um, and, you know, this is, you know, so the sort of things that happen in big bureaucracies where, you know, expense accounts run around, you know, uh, you know, have issues and, you know, there are strange recruiting uh, problems and so on. Um, and so I'm sure there are kind of, you know, endless individual stories, but to me, you know, the biggest, you know, misimpression I think people have is, you know, not, you know, the James Bond image, which I think, you know, any intelligent person realizes, you know, that actually is a movie. Uh, but just, you know, the sense that, you know, you don't spend a lot of time filling out forms. You spend a lot of time kind of, you know, waiting and doing things that you would do in any other large place. Um, but all that said, at least my experience is very positive. And I urge those of you who are eligible to, to consider it for your future. I will say one one funny thing, I, and that everybody complains about is the parking lot, because it's it's so enormous. I mean, we've seen in movies, right, where they 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 come over and they show it's just enormous. And I I actually lost. No, that my is car. The, that's the vault where they're like wheeling the ark into at the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, I actually lost my car a few times where I just I ended up just having always to park in the farthest out spot, so I would always remember that that was where I was. And one day I, I got in early and I got like a really good close in spot. And at the end of the day, I like, like, uh, you know, like uh, Pavlov's dog, I still just walked all the way out to the far spot where I normally my car was. And I got all the way up and I was like, oh, shit, I got to walk 20 minutes all the way back in to get to my car. But I actually lost my car once in, in the lot and a friend had to drive me around while I was like clicking the key, <laughs> trying to find where it was. Well, when I, once when I went out to uh, NSA, uh, they gave me the VIP spots, which are right in front of the, uh, uh, and uh, NSA's parking lots are like as big as, they're crazy big. And, um, and you can just see the animus and the envy of the people who've just walked from the outer spots at the outsiders who get the VIP spots right in front of the entrance. And uh, I have to say, I, I enjoyed that. I like how much of a, of, of a Democrat you are until you get the special perks. And then you're like, yeah, no, no I'm all about the special perks. <laughs> all right. We are going to leave it there. Alex Wait, Finley. Oh, we have to see, yeah, the, the overlap, the Venn diagram. There Ta Venn talk diagram. us through it, KK. Okay, so we have, okay, so it might not be legible. Hopefully it's not entirely um, legible. Um, but that's just because I have terrible handwriting. But there is, I'll, I'll recreate it and post on Twitter. But um, the overlap, which is the most important part, is white nationalism in lieu of fun, obviously. Uh, <laughs> you have that in common. Um, political legitimate legitimation of violence and hate, uh, threats and our responses to them, and government-like terrorists, uh, or, or government-like, oh, I don't remember. Oh, yes, government-like bureaucracy that um, terrorists have, which borders on absurdity. And then just in a special category, all in its own is 13-year-old boy dog on the internet. Um, but that's, that's what I'm sorry. I mean, it's not he, coherent. <laughs> like, he's your next character, Alex. Yeah. 
Victor against the Estonian boy. 13-year-old uh, boy dog. Yeah, boy Hitler. All right, we are going to leave it there. Alex, Dan, you're great Americans. Uh, the books are Spreading Hate and Victor in Trouble. Uh, one is funny, the other is not. They're both pretty serious at I'm the end of the day. I'm Spreading Hate, and I have just read all of... And are you learning? Ordered, I, no, just it's not a it's not a manual, a how to guide, Kate. I know. I'm just figuring just that out. Warning you, I, yeah. It took me a little bit. <laughs> um, but uh, I will say that I just, uh, Alex, I'm like now that I have tenure, I have just ordered all of uh, your books, and I am now very excited to read the trilogy. Too, too hey, scary you're, to you're read saying that, before you're saying you the quiet part about tenure out loud. <laughs> yeah. Now that you're tenure, you're working especially hard, you meant to say. That's the least what I No, mean. I'm, yes. I mean, yes, yes. <laughs> Thank you so much, Dan. <laughs> we are going to be back. I know, hey, for those of you who've been getting in touch with me about this, I know I've been slow about uh, uh, posting the audio uh, and uh, like a two-person operation over here. I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna catch up. It's not a problem. We're gonna post one tonight. We're gonna post one Saturday. We're gonna post one Sunday, and then Monday it'll be the show. So you know we'll be back Monday, uh, some number of hours and uh, fifty-seven minutes from now. And until then, KK. We don't have fun anymore, but we do have 13-year-old dog boys on the internet. Three amazing satire, like, satires to read about the CYA. And, uh, you know, some hate to spread. And a DIY man who put Jen behind it. That's right. Because <laughs> we're not.